You're listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com. So if you have a Bible, would you go to James chapter 2? James chapter 2. A few weeks ago, I was studying the word of my son-in-law, Nick, and uh, Nick and Brittany do a Bible study at their house, and I got to say, it had been a while since I'd been in the book of James, and we got in, and we're studying, and talking, and reading chapter 1 and 2, and it drew me in like it's never drawn me in before, and so what I want to do is give you guys a little background to the book, and then let's, let's look at a few things and see if it doesn't minister to you. So the book of James, and forgive me for you folks that already know of this, but the book of James is part of seven letters. We call them the general epistles, the general epistles from Hebrews on to uh, Jude. They're the general epistles. First uh, and second Peter, first, second, third John and Jude. Why are they called general? Well, in about the third century, a church father named Eusebius classified them as general because the recipients aren't a particular group. Paul wrote to the Ephesians or the Colossians. These letters are generally sent out to Christian believers. And Eusebius called them, you'll hear these called Catholic letters, Catholic letters. Well, Catholic means universal. The the true meaning of Catholic means universal. So these were universal letters. Now, the the fact that they were written to a general audience should interest us because I don't, you know, I don't know what your background, your history, but in the word, this will speak to you. In no certain terms, this will speak to you. And I believe that uh, this epistle is one of the earliest. Some commentators will say no. I believe it is, and I think I can prove that to you through through my study here, but I'll do that in a little bit. Uh, As you know, James was the oldest brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, wasn't he? But what I find fascinating is James was at odds with his brother, his half-brother Jesus. At times, you can read about them kind of button heads in uh, John 7, along with the rest of his brothers. They made fun of Jesus. That's probably not a good place to be. But anyway, they were brothers, you know. They were, yeah, they, they were doing his thing. And so what I find, so this is the half-brother of Jesus When he wrote this, can you imagine his insight? Can you imagine his insight into the Word of God? That's why I really listen. When James speaks, I listen. So what we're going to see, though, when James writes this, in no uncertain terms, he knows his half-brother is God. In fact, he refers to him as our glorious Lord. And what's so neat in the book of James, I think if I was Jesus' half-brother, I would have referenced that somewhere, like, you know, get a little credibility. He doesn't. He references Jesus as the Lord of glory, knew his place, absolutely. James is a very interesting man. Uh, He was uh, certainly very prominent in the church of Jerusalem. Uh, let, let, me, let me give you a, a few bullet points here. He was one of the select individuals that Christ appeared to after Christ was resurrected. Paul called James a pillar of the church. That's pretty high accommodation. And Paul sought out James on his first post-conversion. After Paul was converted, he went to meet with James at the church of Jerusalem, didn't he? 
And also on Paul's last trip in Acts 21, he went back to see James. When Peter was rescued from jail, what did he say? Go tell James. Go tell James. And I mentioned he's a leader of the church at Jerusalem. Some will refer to him as the senior pastor. He was the guy running the show there in no uncertain terms. In fact, Jude, another writer of the Bible, just referred to, uh, to himself as the brother of James. No other title, that was enough. I'm the brother of James. Pretty high accommodation. James was martyred in 62 AD, so he died like a lot of the other saints. He was martyred for his faith. So what I want to draw your attention to here, as you get into chapter 2, and some of you probably have already read it, when James wrote this, there were no chapter breaks. There's not a chapter break here. It's like when you write a letter to someone, do you go chapter 1, chapter 2? No, you don't. You write a letter. And so it's really unfair for us, at least for me, to exposit this, to try to say, okay, here's a separate idea in chapter 2. Here's a separate idea in chapter 3 or 1. They all flow together. The whole book flows together. And I find it interesting that some folks, they shy away from the book of James. They just do. They're all, oh, that kind of doesn't hit me right. Other people gravitate towards it. And I don't know about you, but, uh, you know, when I sat down to study or understand the Bible, very quickly I realized that the Bible understands me more than I understand it in no uncertain terms. And this book just spoke to me big time. The book of James is very reminiscent of what we call the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. In fact, some people call James the Proverbs of the New Testament. You know, it's like, do this, don't do this. These little statements, but it's quite concise and quite effective. And I'll say this, it's a bold statement, but I think I'm right in this. All five chapters of James can be boiled down to a couple verses in chapter one, and I'm gonna get those. Chapter one, verse 22 through 25 say this, and you can really cover all of James with this. James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. And so I titled my sermon, Effectual Doers. We don't want to be forgetful hearers of the word. We want to be effectual doers of the word. Later on in, in this chapter, I think I can put that more succinctly. Verse 17 of chapter 2, you can read it for yourself. Basically says, faith without works is dead. That's what James is all about. And I'm going to break that down for you, but that's what it's all about. Faith without works is dead. And I'd certainly realize that can be a gut punch to some of us. It's like, what? Wait a minute. Who, who are you to tell me about my faith based off my works? But guess what? That's exactly what James intended. He wanted this to be a gut punch. Maybe some of you uh, kind of struggle with that and say, I'm not quite so sure. You're in good company. You're in really good company. You know the, 
16th century reformer, Martin Luther, did not think the book of James should be in the canon of Scripture. Upon his first couple of readings, he set, had such a vehement opposition to the book of James exactly for that reason. He said, wait a minute, I cannot reconcile what James is saying about works with what Paul says about slavish, slavish legalism. Because Paul just rails against this legalistic attitude. Paul says you're saved by faith, nothing else. We'll get into that. We'll get into that. But anyway, um, thankfully and rightfully, it wasn't long until Martin Luther recognized a couple things. Here's what he figured out. He figured out that James, in writing this, was writing, he, he wasn't writing on how to become a Christian. He was writing about how you behave after you're a Christian. Two different things, two different things. James' assumption is that you already believe, so he can use verbiage and take a tact a little different than Paul. And then Luther famously wrote this, I like this. You are saved by faith alone, but if that faith is alone, it is not true faith. Faith will never stay alone. You're saved by faith alone, but that faith will never stay alone. It will have works with it. I like to use the analogy of motion when it comes to good works in this way. Listen, in the spiritual realm, I think it works like this too. Where there's life, there will be motion. Where there's life, there will be motion. When a person comes to Christ, he's a new creation. A new life begins. That life will express itself through motion or good deeds, spiritual works. James asks a question in chapter 2. He says, what good is it if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Just flat out. And now let me say this. In the physical world, motion or movement does not cause life but it is a sure sign of life, isn't it? In the same way, genuine faith in Christ will always result or demonstrate itself by good works. So, pardon me, but I did want to go into a little longer introduction. I think this book needs to be set up in a particular way to get the full grasp of it. So, let's get into the Word. James chapter 2. I will read verses 1 through 7 to begin with, if the wind doesn't blow all my stuff around here. Here we go. Verse 1 of chapter 2. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand here, or you sit over on the floor at my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But if you have insulted the poor, Excuse me, but you have insulted the floor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? So yes, absolutely. I think he makes a wonderful point right there. And, and the fact is that 
We see in the first verse, James immediately draws our attention to the big picture, which is and always will be the Lord Jesus Christ, bar none. He says this, listen, the Lord of glory, he calls him the Lord of glory. In fact, let me back up. I, I read out of the, the old NIV. Listen to what the New King James, how they translate verse one. I like this better. Listen to this. It says, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. See, here's what he's saying. The Lord made a mighty dissension to come to the earth and hang out with losers like us. Huge, huge dissension to come to be with us. And James is saying, you know, if you even have a half of a grasp on this, you will not think of showing favoritism. I like to say the ground at the foot of the cross is extremely level. Jesus stands here. We all stand here. And that's what James is getting at right here. Let me ask you this question, though. I think it's an obvious outworking. So is the Bible telling us not to give special consideration to some? Is it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I'll tell you what, if an elderly man or woman come into the congregation and there's no place to sit, I have no trouble telling a couple teenagers in the front row to beat it. <laughs> I'm serious. Or, or, uh, or, or say we have a veteran returning from war. Are we not going to show him some sort of consideration? We are. In fact, if we flip a book to the right, First Peter says to honor the king. It's not talking about that king. It's saying to... Uh, pay honor to whom honor is due. And that's the story of that. James is simply saying, listen, don't honor someone because of the size of their wallet. That's all he's saying. The amount of money someone does or does not have should play no part in how you treat them, bar none. We're studying Leviticus in the men's group on Monday, and I find it interesting. We were in, in Leviticus 19 not long ago. And in the Old Testament, I think this is such a prevalent theme. In Leviticus 19, it says that you're not to honor the rich, but you're also not to honor the poor. Sometimes we get that so flipped around. We say, oh, they're poor. We've got to do this or that. They might be poor because they're lazy. You, you don't honor... You, you, it, the, the, the book of Leviticus says to judge our neighbors fairly. And that's what James is saying. Judge them fairly, not in regard to their wallet, what they have or they don't have. And verse 2 is interesting. Go back. See, see where it says in verse 2, suppose a man or woman comes into your meeting wearing gold. That word meeting, this is why I say I believe this is one of the earliest epistles. That word meeting translated is synagogue, synagogue. And that's a place where Jews meet to go to church. So this shows that the book of James, I believe, was one of the first New Testament books in that Gentiles were not widely received in the Christian church at that time. The overwhelming majority were Jews. Later on, you know, that changed. But again, I, I think that this gives a lot of proof, not only that, but this is the only place 
you'll find it translated like that. So there was a change later. But anyway, I find that kind of stuff extremely interesting. In verses 5 through 7, let, let me refresh you with what it says. I like this because James uses his brother's rhetoric, his half-brother Jesus' rhetoric very well. He uses these rhetorical devices. Tell me if this does not sound familiar. Verse 5 through 7 um, it says, listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have sinned, excuse me, but you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging to court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong. Obvious talking about Jesus. Total rhetoric there. Let me remind you of something our Lord Jesus said in, uh, you don't have to go there, but Luke, Luke 14, uh, verse 25 says this, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, and it's apostles he's turning to, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So let me ask you, you think Jesus is advocating hating your parents, your sister, your brother? Seems to me there's a, a, a commandment that says, honor your parents. No, again, it's, it's this rhetoric. It's a device. When Jesus says, you know, to follow me, you must hate your wife, what he's saying, you're to love Jesus and love your wife, but the disparity or the gap between your love for your wife and Jesus is so huge, it would look like hate. And that if you love another human but hate someone, there's a big gap. The gap should be the same between your wife, your brother, your sister, your mother, how much you love them and how much you love the Lord. It's love all the way. But Jesus is saying, pay attention. This is exactly how it should be. And his brother's doing the same thing here. Listen, James isn't saying you have to be poor to inherit the kingdom. It sounds like he says, listen, has not God chosen the poor to inherit the promises? I think not, man. How about Abraham? Rich. Job? Rich. Joseph of Arimathea? Rich. He's not saying that at all. And, and then he says, uh, you know, the, in verse 6, that, you know, only the, aren't the rich dragging into court, they're doing this. Well, the reason was only the rich had the money to hire the court services, the, the lawyers, the court, you had to pay money to go to court if you wanted someone prosecuted then. He's just saying, this is our society. Um, in no way he's saying, you know, uh, that you got to be poor to get to heaven. Not, not a bit. And verse 7, where it says that, uh, you know, are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to who you belong? He's not saying only the rich are slandering Jesus. No, there were poor that were slandering Jesus. He's just using this as a device. And the reason I go into this detail is because some people think the book of James is just so straightforward. No, it's deep. You have to take it in the context in which it's written to get the full meaning out of it, in my opinion anyway. So these first seven verses that I've just gone over, they challenge us all to consider the high position of Jesus 
and what he did for us. That's what these seven verses are about. And to consider what it's like, in verse 5 it says that true wealth is to inherit the kingdom of God. That's true wealth. Who's that given to? That's promised to those that love him, isn't it? That's promised to all of us. Praise God. That's promised to Gabriel. That is promised to Marvin. That is promised to the Christian that are in Afghanistan. That love, that is the only thing that is our entrance to heaven. But even here on earth, that's our access to true peace. And that's dang good news. Let me read verses 8 through 13. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act at those, as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Man, do I love that. Man, do I love that. So what is this royal law that James speaks of? I bet you know, Phil, don't you? Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbors yourself. In fact, Jesus said that all the law and the prophets are hinged or contained to those two. The royal law. Very, very important. But notice this, and this sent a little shiver through me now. James immediately follows that by saying, favoritism violates the royal law. Favoritism, just acting like sometimes we do, just not thinking, violates the royal law. That's heavy-duty stuff right there. We need to treat everyone fairly. My mind goes back to, remember that Pharisee trying to justify himself in front of the Lord by asking, uh, well, who's my neighbor? Because Jesus gave him the royal law. Then the Pharisee said, okay, I love God, but you know what? Who's my neighbor? Jesus shared the story of the Good Samaritan, didn't he? He basically told that Pharisee, and that Pharisee was bummed, that he needed to treat the folks that he considered to be worthless with great care. Pharisee didn't want to hear that. That Pharisee was bummed because he was looking to narrow the circle of the people that he needed to treat right. And we all do that. We try to narrow our circle, don't we? We have all these, well, this guy, this, that lady. We want to narrow that circle because we can get our mind around that. That's not what God's asking us to do. And, and you know, I, I think we all kind of fall into the trap of picking and choosing not only who will be nice to and who will disregard, but also choosing which one of God's laws is really important and which one isn't. I've done it, but it's stinking wrong. The problem is that James says if you stumble in one part, one part, you break it all. Let me say this. The law of God is not like a big sheet of metal where you can puncture it in one place and the rest is intact. The law of God is like a pane of glass. 
You hit it one place, the whole thing is gone, man. It is gone. And I'll tell you, um, it brings chills because I'm constantly reminded and thankful for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ because I screw up all the time. I break all the laws. When I break one, I break them all. There's no room for me to sit smug and happy here. Oh yeah, good little Christian. Uh-uh, I, I need the Lord, man. I've, I broke them all. I've, I've broke them all. You know I, know, I know we can tolerate folks cheating on their taxes, but I tell you, someone breaks in your house and takes your stuff, you want prosecution. All lawbreakers, right? What does it matter, man? Because it's your stuff, that's why. You know, um, and who's to say that a little ignoring of the civil law is not a great offense against God? Who's to say? You? Mm -mm. I think it would do us all a heck of a lot of good to remember that it's not the importance of the thing, but the majesty of the lawgiver. It is not the importance what we think of the law. It is the majesty of the lawgiver. James 12 and, and 13 remind us of this. Stinking wind blowing my pages. Here we go. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So James is reminding me that us as Christians, we will stand before a judgment seat. Did you guys know that? Did you know that? Not the great white throne judgment. No, no Christian will be there. That's not your going to hell, but it's called the Bema seat judgment. We will be judged for what we do, and it's a great, great reminder. You know, James, to me, again, sounds like his brother, doesn't he? Uh, remember the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That's almost verbatim. What his brother James is saying here, I love it. I think that tells me is that in some way, and it's divine, it's, it's in God's realm, in some way, when we show mercy, it will count as reward for us. That's what I get out of this. When we show mercy, it will count as reward. And that's an incredible statement. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's tough. It feels good but it's a tough one. And for me, I can't tell you how many times I've regretted. It's like the words come flying out of my mouth and I can't get it back when I've been judgmental to those that maybe they were even in the wrong. Let's say they were in the wrong and I was in the right. I had an opportunity to show mercy and I didn't because I'm right. And it felt good to hammer them like that. I feel I've been sick to my stomach so many times after doing that. And, and I believe God is saying, wait, it is a great, great blessing to err on the side of mercy. Err on the side of mercy. Here's the fact. God always knows who's right and who's wrong. Let's leave the judging to him. How about that? That might work. Verse 14 through 26, let's do this. And I know we took a long time. I'll, I'll try to speed this up. I know we took a long time uh, with all the stuff we had to cover. But, but let me do this. Verse 14. What good is it, my brother, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, 
I wish you well. Keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Dead. Notice this. Pay attention here. Verse 14. It says, What good is it, my brother, if man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Be clear on this. James is not contrasting faith and deeds. That is not the thing. He is contrasting true faith with false faith. Leave the deeds out for a second. James is talking about true faith versus false faith, not faith and deeds. True faith is inseparably connected to faith. To deeds. It's, it's, you, you can't, James saying you can't have one without the other. Our, see, our good deeds are an outward manifestation of a work that God has done within us. It's an outward manifestation. In, in the Calvary system, when we ordain a pastor, okay, the elders get together and they pray over that man and he is a pastor. So let me ask you this. Was it the prayers of the elders that made him a pastor? I think not. I think not. See, the elders only affirm a work that God has already done. God makes pastors, not men. Seminaries kick out pastors by the hundred. You got a certificate, you're a pastor. Maybe some are, maybe some aren't. I don't know, but I know only God can make a pastor. I do know that. I'm quite confident of that. Deeds are the recognition of true faith. Verse 15 and 16. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? Again, James, what good is it? Like, what are you talking about? Words don't accomplish the act of feeding and clothing, do they? Words do not do that. Faith that only consists of words and deeds do not demonstrate for salvation. That's the direct correlation James is going there. Faith without deeds does nothing. I like this in regard to, you know, someone comes to your house or you meet them on the street and they're hungry, but you go, yeah, I'll pray for you. And I, let, let me tell you about the gospel. I love what C.H. Spurgeon said. Man, he hit it on the head. Spurgeon said, if you want to give a hungry man a Bible track, wrap it in a sandwich. 
right? But seriously, you know? Um, verse 17, let's, let's, let's look at this. In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, here's the one that Luther got back to. Luther so rightly interpreted this, and I talked about it earlier. Luther said, you are saved by faith alone, but if that faith is alone, it's not true faith. And that is so true. And I think we get that. I don't want to hammer that. Let's look at the backside of that because we can get wrapped around the axle on the other side. Some will draw this false conclusion from this verse that uh, thinking you get to heaven by feeding the poor, clothing the poor. Believe me, they do. I, I've run into them. But can I say this? There are huge, huge nonprofit entities set up to do exactly that, whether it's United Way, Red Cross, whatnot. But those organizations you see are spiritually void. They accomplish a task that are spiritually void. We must always remember the gospel must be front and center when we do what we do, or else basically it becomes kind of worthless on a temporal level. The ground of entry into heaven is being born again. Can I say that? I think we'll agree. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, what must I do to be saved? How, how does this work? Jesus said you must be born again. Jesus didn't say you got to clothe the poor. You, you got to feed the needy. No, that's an outworking of it. But let me say this. Pay attention because I think this, this, this logically makes sense to me. The presence of these good deeds in someone's life cannot argue the presence of faith. You got the good deeds, you can't use that as an argument for faith. However, the absence of those deeds can be used for an argument to the absence of faith. And that's exactly how that works right there. It's a priority of the gospel that leads us, in my opinion, to feed and clothe the poor, and do what we do. It was the priority of the gospel in William Wilberforce's life that led this ex-slave trader to abolish slavery in Great Britain. He didn't do it before he was a Christian. He was a slave trader, my gosh. That's how it works. Verse 18 says this, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. And I won't bore you very simply, very simply. This is just saying you cannot separate the two. James is driving that home. You can't separate the two. Verse 19, let's break this apart really quick here. You believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Oh, do I like that. So I got to say this. It's not just about having the right doctrine. You can have the right doctrine and go to hell. Can I tell you that? You can have the right doctrine and go to hell. Case in point, many times it was the demons that recognized the Lord Jesus Christ before anyone else. In fact, this, this place in Mark 1, uh, Jesus had just spoken in the synagogue really eloquently. And this demon-possessed man jumps up out of his seat and cries out, what do you want with us, Jesus? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Does that mean that demon is saved because he had the right doctrine? 
Is that demon going to heaven because he had an orthodox understanding of the Godhead, which he did? He was spot on. I think not. You know, it do us well to realize the Bible or the devil knows the Bible way better than we ever will, ever will. Satan would be an outstanding seminary professor. You'd fight to get in his class. That dude knows it, man. He knows it. You see, we're not in need of an education. We're in need of salvation. We are not in need of an educator. We're in need of a savior. Now, don't, some of you guys know me, and it sounds like I'm talking out of one side of my face because I believe in studying. I really do. I like doing it. It's certainly not to say that education doesn't take place, but education is never the cause of salvation. Never, never. It's faith, a work of the Holy Spirit. We'll end with this, 20 through 24. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Can I freeze verse 24? Because this will get some people really... Let's just look at verse 24. It says that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Wait a minute. That sounds like a contradiction. A huge contradiction. Wait a minute. We're justified by what we do and not by faith? Seems to me the Apostle Paul says the exact opposite in Romans and Ephesians. He says that salvation is by faith alone, the exact opposite, and that no man is justified by the law. Oh my gosh. It seems that Paul and James disagree. What are we going to do about this? This is crazy, and they just don't disagree on a little thing. This contradiction is on a big, big deal. How you get saved. Before you throw your Bibles out, hold on. I think I can figure this one out or, or help us too. Let me point out a few things. Number one, you know, James knew Paul quite well. He knew his doctrine, just saying. But anyway, um, the first point I want to make, and this is good just not for studying this. If you grab hold of what I'm saying, it's going to help you study the entire Bible. The first thing is context. Context is so important. Context is what does the whole chapter or book, what direction it is going. There's a cute little saying, and I believe it's right, it says text, the words, without context. What it means is pretext or a lie. Text without context is pretext. You've got to know what direction the word, or excuse me, the Bible, the chapter is going in. Now, as I've said, and I hope I've articulated this correctly, the whole chapter of James has been contrasting true faith with a dead faith. So here's the deal. This dead faith that he talks about, it's still a faith. Not the right one, but it's really still a faith. A dead faith is a faith. You can be sincere, but sincerely wrong. You're still sincere. It is a faith. 
And remember that James is not writing on how to become a Christian. As I said before, he's writing on how a person acts after conversion. Paul, for the most part, is writing on how to become a Christian. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, you know it well, but indulge me. Let me read that because I think this is just so well put. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Ooh, let's look at this. So Paul flat out says, not by works, but look what follows. We were created in Christ Jesus to do these works, which he already prepared for us to do. Paul's saying you cannot be saved, legitimately be saved, without eventually showing works. He's saying, no, you're saved, but you're created to do works. It's very, there's no contradiction there. Paul's saying the exact same thing. So here's the thing, philosophically, I'll repeat this twice, what I'm going to say, because this is the crux of the argument. We're going to look at Paul and James. Paul is dealing with the faith that comes from works, which is nothing. Paul's dealing with the faith that comes from works, which is nothing. James is dealing with the works that come from faith, which is everything. They're approaching it from back ends of the same thing. It's actually quite quite wonderful. Um, and, and let me just say this, anytime, and I hadn't planned on saying this, but it seems so obvious, anytime we sense an apparent contradiction in the Bible, I'll guarantee you this, the mistake is on our end. Keep digging. The Holy Spirit will reveal something so wonderful. Spend the time. Don't gloss over it. Just like this, both these brothers saying the same thing. Paul's dealing with what comes out of works, you know, do you get faith out of works? No, you can never. Paul says it's dead. James is dealing with what comes out of real faith, works come out of real faith. In verse 24, basically, and he's, he's just reading, reiterating verse 17. Um, he's saying that, you know, a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. This phrase, faith alone, keeps coming up, doesn't it? Verse 17 says, faith that is alone is no faith at all. That's all that's going on there. And lastly, listen to this. I so love this, how James picks Abraham to bring as his witness to testify for the point that he's making about faith and works. Abraham, I can't think of a better person uh, that, that has really lived out and shown that faith shows itself through works. Get this. You don't go there, but you guys have a good enough Bible knowledge to remember this. Remember in, in Genesis 15, when God accredited righteousness and salvation to Abraham for just believing, he said, you believed, you've got all this. You were saved, you were righteous just for believing. Just for believing, right? If you would have asked Abraham, hey, Abe, what did you do for that salvation, that righteousness, he would have said, I didn't do anything. I just believed. That's what the Bible says. So some 30 years later, we have Genesis chapter 22. 
about 30 years later, Genesis 22, where Abraham leads his only son, Isaac, up the mountain to be sacrificed. Because that's what God told him to do, right? In Genesis 12, 22, it's interesting. And this is your homework. Go back and look at this. It's really interesting. In Genesis 22, verse 12, we have this scene where God is almost looking in, kind of like a voyeur into what's going on. And the, the narrative describes Abraham with the wood and all the stuff to sacrifice Isaac, the knife, leading him up. And, you know, he's just about ready to do it. And then God says through the angel, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Do you think God didn't know what Abraham was going to do? I mean, I'm serious. Do you think God didn't know? Do you think God did not know the strength of Abraham's faith? Of course he knew. God knows everything. If he doesn't, he ceases to be God. Here's my point. That little line in chapter 22, verse 12, now I know was put there for our benefit, not God. God already knew. That was put there for our behalf. The Holy Spirit did that for us. God is saying essentially, not that he didn't know, he's saying that's how you can know you have faith. Are you willing to do what I ask you to do? That is God being gracious to us. And the Bible is full of points like that. God knew the whole time. That is for our benefit, 100%. And lastly, God, he's so good. We know good works. Or I think, I hope we know that we'll always follow faith. But let me say this, dear friends. That was a 30-year time period between when Abraham received this faith and to where God gave him a chance to live it out or asked him to do something. God's timetable is different than ours, dear friends. It just is. Don't, you know, do not be frustrated. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that when we receive Christ, we are new creations. The old is gone and the new has come. Be blessed. Be really blessed, knowing that God will give us all the perfect time and situation to do the works we were created in Christ Jesus to do. Absolutely. Amen and amen. What I'd like to do right now, if, if my dear sister Lindsay Hume could come up, and I want to invite the prayer team up. I really feel in light of what I mentioned at the start of our sermon we should spend a little bit of time in prayer. And I'll be up here. I would love to pray with you. And it's not that we just have to pray about that, what I mentioned, although it'd be great. If there's anything on your heart, this is a heavy time. It really is. I can hardly stand to turn the news on. I think, God, what's going on? Don't you have control? God knows. It's like me saying, now I know, but God knows. Here's the deal. God wants us to use the most important thing we have, that's prayer. God will coalesce or work all these things that are going on for his goodwill. We have a 50-yard line seat to watch God work miraculously. Thank you for listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com.